good morning, and this is 42 Minutes. You can find more information at thethinkbook.com. This is a weekly conversation with artists and philosophers of our day. The show is willing to question uh, the answers to life, or <laughs> the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Today is February 5th, 2013, for posterity state, or posterity's sake. My name is William Morgan. How are you today, Doug? I'm doing well. And today on 42 Minutes, we're joined by a very special guest, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, author and biologist, a man who has spent the bulk of his scientific career reuniting spirit with matter, a champion of life and consciousness in the face of scientific materialism. Dr. Sheldrake's original contribution to the development of science, scientific thought and history is his theory of morphic resonance, explored and developed in some 80 scientific papers and 10 books. Most recently, Dr. Sheldrake published Science Set Free, 10 Paths to New Discovery. Information about this, his other books, and more can be accessed at his website, sheldrake.org. Today, we are intentionally doing 21 minutes with Dr. Sheldrake in honor of his friend, Terrence McKenna. But before we journey back into the past, back to Esalen, I should say, welcome. How are you today, Dr. Sheldrake? I'm fine, thanks. Wonderful. The reason I wanted to talk to you has to do with your unique perspective on what just happened. And by what happened, I mean December 21st, 2012. It seems to me that Terence himself has kind of become the ultimate, ultimate novelty, his own, his own meme in, in, in that case. But like every other end of the world experience, it seems like we look forward to it, we pass through it, and then we kind of forget about it, despite whatever symbolic truth was manifested. Um, but I'm having like difficulty reconciling Terence's uncanny ability to see what was coming, his you know his prescience, with uh, the disembodied aspects of novelty theory, information theory, as well as Terence's thoughts on artificial intelligence, which Ralph Abraham deemed paranoid fantasy in in the trialogues you three participated in. He described our internet future and the coming AI cult. Can you give us perspective on your friend and this synchronicity holiday he created, and maybe his culpability? Um, well, not sure about culpability. Terence was a funny mixture of a kind of shamanic, organic uh, visionary, you know, based on shamanic psychedelics, and kind of technophilia, where he was always swept along by the latest technological fantasies. And Ralph and I, in our conversations, had a great many um, conversations with him about these things. Both of us were rather skeptical, both about the 2012 prophecy and about his technophilic, um, you know, the, the artificial intelligence uh, views. Um, so, you know, the side of Terence I've always most appreciated was the fact he had a bardic gift. He, he spoke in the most inspired and astonishing way on almost any subject. He was almost completely fascinating. Um, uh, but I think in terms of the prophecies, of the, of the end time prophecies, I mean, he was plainly wrong. Um, so one could argue that he was, you know, sharpening up our awareness that history is pulled from the future rather than pushed from the past, or at least it's a matter of both. Um, I think that's a very valuable insight, but the exact details of his channeled uh, prophecy at the end were clearly uh, a little bit off. He himself admitted this possibility. He said, uh, you know, 
in 2012, he said, I'll be 65. He, of course, died in 2000, but had he survived, he would have been 65. He said, so either I'll witness the end of the world or I'll just retire. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and coming as the next generation, you know, behind everything that all the, uh, I mean, both my co-hosts and I are reading a fascinating book about Esalen right now. But, um, you know, one of the questions we have to ask is uh, the, what are the long-term psychedelic use. You know, what are the dangers of that? Well, I don't know. I mean, in Terence's case, he died of a brain tumor. But um, obviously, it crossed his mind that this was something to do with long-term psychedelic use. But his doctors assured him it wasn't. And there are tons of people dying of brain tumors nowadays who have never taken psychedelics. So um, mm. I don't think brain tumor is one of the things that, uh, that Terence's example flags up for us. Um, I don't know. I think, I think the only, only way of really finding out the effects of long-term psychedelic use and whether they're good or bad for people, I suppose, would be to do a long-term study of frequent psychedelic users. Um, I'm not sure how many people there are who are long-term psychedelic users. Most people do it as a kind of fairly short phase in their lives with then occasional um, ingestions, but I don't know that there are many people who do it on a very regular basis. Anyway, that's a kind of research question rather than something one can speculate about. That's a good point, but I guess that's what we're here for. And and then to this end, uh, as far as the state of the world, um, you know, I, I often wonder whether or not there can be a rational solution to to the society that we've created as far as um, the environmental crises that we're manifesting with our very you know uh, materialistic paradigms um, wh- what are your well, thoughts about that well i think the chance of rational solutions is fairly low i mean the 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 um the climate change thing you know 10 years ago it looked as if by scientists coming up with rational models United Nations convening intergovernmental meetings, uh, international scientists working alongside politicians. They were going to craft some global agreement to do something about climate change. In the end, of course, what's happened is just a whole set of squabbling by politicians and everybody saying, oh, we don't want to do anything because other people won't. Where we've got something, which is something that threatens all humanity, Um, there's both a disagreement on the political level and, of course, on the climate change level because there are skeptics. Some of them, I think, are cynically employed by oil companies and so forth. Others are sincere and think that um, there are reasonable grounds for doubting uh, climate change is actually happening, or if it is, it's caused by carbon dioxide. So the whole issue is being completely clouded. And this is one of the most scientific issues that we're likely to deal with. Um, so the idea of a rational solution um, is is not very easy to see. I think what happens in politics and what happens to people in general is that 
rational, careful, thinking about things in advance, working it through, doesn't play a major part in human life. Um, I wish it did, but it, it, it seems to be what happens is people lurch from crisis to crisis and respond to the crisis as it happens. Um, and here the question would be, you know, do we have a good plan if there is a crisis? Well, Terence McKenna used to say, you know, the thing to do is to wait until everything's breaking down, and there's chaos breaking out, then jump on the micro, jump on the stage and seize the microphone. Um, well, if one does that, if one followed Terence's plan, then one would have to have something pretty coherent and well worked out to say. Um, and it's not clear that anyone's got um, a ready-made recipe for dealing with the problems of the world today. And part of the techno-fantasy is that the, the new device or the new gizmo is the, is the thing that, that will put us into balance with the natural environment somehow. That Well, that pretty, seems pretty unlikely, doesn't it? I mean, the new gizmos... Uh, we just keep getting farther and farther down this hole. Exactly, and, and most people nowadays seem to spend most of their time on, on new gizmos, mostly communicating with each other you know, about what they've just eaten for breakfast. Um, <laughs> so, uh, the gizmos uh, haven't been attended by a kind of enormous elevation of the level of human thought, sort of so that we're vastly overtaking the ancient Greeks or the Hindu rishis and seers. It's um, mostly social. Got all these gizmos. I mean, most of the stuff one reads on the internet and, and, and on gizmos and social media is not, you know, at the highest level of humanity throughout all its history, not at all. It's just a weird. It's just a weird time in history because I mean, we do have this. This, in a way, McKenna was right because it is the ultimate novelty, right? It's like just complete. You know, Butter. It's just it's just entertainment constantly in a way. Constant entertainment. On the other hand, I do think things really are changing. One of the themes in my book, Science Set Free, my recent book, is that um, the old materialist model that's dominated science since the late 19th century, and the mechanistic model that's dominated it since the 17th century, um, are really breaking down now, and since science is the most dominant feature of our entire culture, and since it's the most international, it's the same in every country, more or less, um, a change in science, a, a phase change in science, is likely to have very far-reaching implications. And I think we're actually seeing that happen. And since my book came out um, a year ago in England, um, it's been out in the US now for a few months, um, This um, I've seen many signs of this change actually happening. The point about a major change, a, a change in scientific paradigm, which we can see the outlines of, it will be a change from the machine view of nature to a much more organic view of nature. Um, it'll be a, a, a nature, I think, with a kind of memory within it, um, where consciousness plays a much greater role, where we see um, some kind of mentality or uh, mind in matter, even in electrons. Um, this shift that's happening um, is, I think, a very profound one. But with any shift in science or technology or philosophy, it's very hard to know exactly where it will go. No one could have foreseen in the 1840s when Faraday was working out the basic laws of electricity and magnetism. And no one could have foreseen 
in radio, television, cell phones, the internet. And yet all those flowed from the discoveries that were going on in electricity and magnetism um, you know, in, in the 1840s and 50s. Um, so it's very, very hard to tell where all these changes will lead. But it, I think it's pretty clear that the novelty wave um, is at work and that we're into, into a period of uh, greatly accelerating novelty at the moment. Nice. That's what's really fascinating to me about Terence is that it seems he had it, I mean, he really had it right on, that he could see the future, but I'm just so skeptical about this future that we're in where I mean, you sound pretty hopeful in your uh, statement about a paradigm shifting, but as someone who does use screens, you know, and you know, they, we're kind of in this matrix Philip K. Dickian place right now where where it seems like more than ever things are more disembodied that you know we've we've even detached from matter now and that we're just this um transcendent consciousness yes well you know it looks like that and then along comes a hurricane um or along comes from floods or something and, and you realize just how completely dependent we are on the world around us right you know, and, and a big solar flare and the entire internet would go down for days, maybe weeks. Um, so, you know, we're, we're going to get some rude reminders, I think, that, that there's more to the world than disembodied existence on screens. That's a pretty good one. That was a good one. reality checks. Um, and, you know, when those happen, it'll be bewildering for people who are used to spending most of their time on on a screen. Uh, we shouldn't live in fear, though, I mean, because that could happen at any time. Oh, it could happen at any time, yes. I don't live in fear of that. I'd, I'd rather welcome the you know, <laughs> break from emails and, and social communications. I, you know, I, I don't feel that my life's not interactive enough. I think it's too interactive. You know, I think most of us spend so much time interacting, there's not much time left for acting. Wow. Um, so I think that, um, you know, it'll be, it'll be a sobering moment when it comes. I'm pretty sure it'll come. And of course, these things come to people, you know, victims of floods and hurricanes have their lives suddenly and totally radically disrupted. You know, like in Japan with the tsunami and the nuclear power station. Right. Um, you know, these are huge life-changing events it's still locally um, but um, you know, there could be global ones okay now I have a question from one of our um, listeners this is from yeah. Peg she says the field of science by its own self-stated principles is supposed to be or is supposed to regulate itself um, what has gone wrong with that that there are so many pleas of those who point out the premises of its orthodox the accepted she's talking about the accepted science which has never been proven, go for the most part unheard and ridiculed? Well, I think the ideology of science being self-correcting is, is part of this kind of idealized view that science is about open-minded, looking at the evidence, hypothesis, rational and critical testing and so forth. Um, that's a kind of idealized view of science. Anyone who's worked within scientific institutions knows that 
It's an ideal rather than a reality most of the time. And Thomas Kuhn, in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, showed very clearly that science is a human activity carried out by human groups, subject to all the normal human things, peer group pressures, ambition, uh, you know, and, um, and rivalry, and all the rest of it. Um, so what I think happened is that this rather limiting um, social pressure side of science has become very limiting because we now have almost all scientists working in institutions subject to tremendous pressures of peer group pressure, competition for grants and publication and status. Um, and the present grant giving system and the whole institutional framework favors conservatism, it favors incremental change rather than radical change. Um, and I think it's uh, stultifying the entire scientific endeavor. I mean, that's the entire purpose of my book, Science Set Free, to look at the dogmatic assumptions which now constrict science right. um, and to show how we can go beyond them. But it's not just a matter of changing ideas. Uh, it's also a matter of changing the way the institutions of science are run and sort of lightening up uh, the way they're run. And that's a bit harder to see because it's you know, hard to achieve some kind of political reform when you've got enormous vested interests. But nevertheless, I think it's possible, and I suggest various ways in which this could, in fact, be done. Okay. Purpose is a, a word that comes up a lot. And yeah. purpose and evolution, I think it's actually one of the, the dogmas, dogmas listed in your new book. The, yes. the, the idea that there is some kind of uh, set goal, purpose, or as Terence would say, strange attractor. Well, the dogma is that there's no purpose. The, you know, the normal dogma in science is that evolution is entirely purposeless, that nature has no purposes, and that uh, the whole of evolution is governed by blind chance and, and, uh, and blind necessity, that there's no purpose whatever. Now, Terence was a kind of radical within, uh, in his thinking about um, evolution having a purpose or a goal. He thought that it was drawn towards some kind of end point, the eschaton, um, mm. which was a point of maximum complexity and novelty. Um, so he thought of evolution being pulled from the future rather than being pushed from the past. Um, and this was actually a little bit like the philosophy of Tyre de Chardin, the Jesuit philosopher, whose famous book, The Phenomenon of Man, was published in the 1950s. Uh, Terence, when I pointed out the similarities of his work to Jesuit philosophy, uh, Terence was um, both amused and appalled. It sort of reminded him of his past. Terence McKenna was a lapsed altar boy, raised Catholic. <laughs> sure. And um, I used to joke with him. I, you know, sometimes called him Father McKenna. When, um, <laughs> 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 uh, when he was getting, getting a bit too extreme on, on the eschaton. Um, but I do think that this is, um, I mean, I think it's a, a way of thinking about time, which is actually a very interesting one, mm. that there is a purpose, there's a goal, or maybe many purposes and many goals. Mm. And in a way, it's a more hopeful and interesting way of thinking of history than the idea that it's entirely blind and purposeless. Right. Both of them are just assumptions. It's not as if either of them is proved by the facts of science. 
Okay, well, we're running out of time, so we're going to wrap this up. But it's interesting because most of our listeners are uh, individuals who are very into synchronicity. And the same thing is kind of presented to you through this weird interplay of you and your environment that, that seems to have some kind of purpose. Um, and even some individuals use your theory of morphic resonance as either an explanation for synchronicity or actually have been brought to your work through synchronicity. So I was wondering how synchronicity would would find a home or a place um, with morphic resonance, perhaps to your own understanding. In 30 seconds. <laughs> um, um, okay, well... Um, Synchronicities seem to be meaningful. They're kind of meaningful coincidences, and they suggest there's a deeper pattern behind what's happening. And I think that morphic fields, which have goals or attractors, which pull things towards goals, um, could exist at sort of rather large-scale levels where seeming coincidences are part of a larger pattern. But the question is, is it just a larger pattern in our own minds, or is there a larger pattern out there? I myself think it's a mixture of both, but we can't be quite sure at any given time whether it's just in our mind or whether it really is a bigger pattern out there. Um, So in each particular case, one has to look at things, and the the evidence is not. Synchronicities are relatively rare, so they don't give us an instant uh, repeatable experiment base for making up our minds about it. Completely unpredictable, completely unexplainable. So, but thank you so much for your time today, sir. It has been an absolute pleasure. A pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Right. And have a good day. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye.